This is In Focus from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. Each episode of In Focus brings you in-depth analysis and perspective from a different corner of our global network of experts. The U.S. turned off the chips. They did turn them off, but they didn't turn it off by technical means. They did it with regulation. The implementation of the digital currency will mean that the central bank can, in theory, monitor every transfer in China and across the world based on the use of uh, the digital RMB. In this installment, we are talking about China's drive toward technology self-sufficiency and what propels that. Is it about Beijing's exposure to foreign supply and unreliability that they believe lies there, or does it have largely domestic drivers? Does China not have a grand plan to dominate critical technologies globally, from 5G to artificial intelligence to e-commerce? And what are the China Standards 2035 program and the much-talked-about digital yuan? Aren't those, in fact, designed to supplant rivals in competing systems, for example, the U.S. dollar, over time? Today I'm joined by Carla Ramsey and Yuanqing Liao of our China practice that looks a lot at regulatory and political issues, and these days increasingly between China and the United States. And they spend a lot of time following the tech sector, which has really been a focal point of the conflict between the two countries. In the last couple of weeks, they've put out two really interesting notes on our core platform of analysis. One was about self-sufficiency, China's drive for self-sufficiency, particularly in the technology area. And one was about China's national standards, China Standards 2035, and a lot of which does focus on technology. So today, it's really great to have them both with us to talk through some of the realities, but also some of the political rhetoric around this topic of technology and standards. So guys, great to have you with us today. Let me start off with this, the whole issue of self-sufficiency. It's come out in China's five-year plan. It's been a big focus in the domestic media. China wants to have self-sufficiency in key parts of the technology sector, the technology world. So I guess the basic question to you is what's driving that and why the urgency? Is it purely driven by politics or is there more there than we're seeing typically in the media headlines? Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Dane. Thanks for having us on the show. Yeah. So the self-sufficiency drive China's basically very worried about the fact that the entire country's key communications infrastructure is built on United States technology. So they've long had this concern. This is a concern that China's had since I've been here since 2009. You know, back then I was talking to one of China's top semiconductor scientists and China has identified chips as like the computer brain as being like the number one priority for becoming Chinese. And so He was a top chip scientist at the time, and he said to me that the entire program for developing an indigenous chip in China was predicated on the belief that the United States could shut down every computer with an Intel chip with the flick of a switch. And I said to him, is that even possible technically? And he's like, I'm not even sure, but that's what we're building the program based on. This is 10 years ago. And Dane, now we're seeing how even more urgent, it was urgent back then, how even more urgent it has become. And that's because the U.S. turned off 
the chips. They did turn them off, but they didn't turn it off by technical means. They did it with regulation, right? By cutting off ZTE and then bringing them back to life, but then really kneecapping Huawei by not allowing chip companies to sell to them. And so in these recent documents, Dane, like the 14-5-year plan, speeches by Xi Jinping, like constantly reinforcing this idea that China has to have self-sufficiency in technology. And is it really that unbelievable that they would want that, right? Like if you imagine the reverse, if the United States was completely dependent on Russian technology to use its computers, to use its telecommunications, what do you think the response would be, right? It's an understandable concern. And the U.S. has just really been under the Trump administration has just really been driving it home, the urgency for China to move in this direction. Fascinating, that urgency that's driving it in a way kind of becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if I take a little bit the fearful view from the West, and I would say probably particularly from the United States, there's a belief that China is, part of this is fed, I think, fairly by, you know, the whole Made in China 2025, all of that. As we know, it's a very planned, goal-oriented industrial policy that China fundamentally wants to be a technology superpower, that they want to dominate all areas, some of which they're very advanced in, like artificial intelligence, and some areas that they're not as advanced in. But they basically want to dominate the technology space because that's the future for the world for almost any industry. That's actually less about their own security and more about wanting to dominate this sector globally. Fair or not? Yeah, I think there is an element of China wanting to dominate some technology areas and areas that they feel that they might have an advantage. And I think it's a combination of needing to dominate in that space because they therefore can set the global standard on that technology. It doubles back into that, thereby kind of protecting their national security, helping their, and also protecting their national champions and helping them move up the value chain. So I think here, Dane, that it is like a, there's multiple drivers, largely domestic driven, but then also have like these international implications, right? So if you take the role, for example, if you want to talk about leapfrogging, technology, I think a lot of people point to like artificial intelligence and how China is constantly talking about how they really want to like dominate in this field. But like, I think most people understand that China's far and away behind the United States in dominating artificial intelligence. But if you kind of zoom in on AI, they're talking about dominating certain aspects of it, like surveillance type technologies, facial recognition, et cetera, like areas where China has kind of got like a first mover advantage. I don't think it's unfair. I guess my point is I don't think it's an unfair characterization of what China's trying to do, but I don't think it's not necessarily that they didn't want to dominate all technologies. Okay. Now, Carla, you've touched on two of my favorite themes. One is, to put it in you know very crude terms, is it about us or is it about them? And I think you know what you've laid out here is that it's more about them, but of course it impacts us. And that's at least partially because of the size of the Chinese economy and certain technologies where they do lead, as you pointed out, like AI. And the second favorite topic is standards. And it's one of those very important words that quite often gets lost in greater discussion around industrial sectors and technology and things like that. And it's critically important. But it is, as you've said before, quite an obscure, can be quite an obscure realm dominated by engineers and specialists. But at the end of the day, it it kind of dictates how on almost a daily basis on what types of things we use, whether it's an Internet protocol or the size of a screw. And China does have this, and this was your other note from our core service, which was China Standards 2035. So again, if I look at this, you know, from the U.S. perspective, they're going to say, aha, here's another way that China is trying to dominate the world in certain sectors because they're rolling out this China Standards 2035. 
So talk us through that. How much of that is industrial policy for China? How much of it is an attempt to dominate certain sectors, maybe globally? Talk us through that China Standards 2035 program. Yeah. So the role of the standards, actually, Dan, this is super interesting. So China has long been pushing for like a greater understanding and role in standard development. And I'll start with what's happening here domestically. So standards are a great tool for government officials to kind of change industry. They're great because they're so fundamental, as you said, Dane, like what products we can use, like what screws we can use to AI algorithms, right? Like they're fundamental. They're very obscure and they're very technical. So it's very difficult for our foreign clients. I think I'm taking the foreign, or the foreign multinational view. It's very difficult for them to understand how these standards are being developed, in what way they're not at the table. They're not sitting at the table in China. And in some cases, they're specifically not allowed to be at the table to set the standards. There's a WTO rule that says that if you make a standard mandatory, you have to report it to the WTO. And so a lot of these standards in China are technically voluntary. However, they are in practice mandatory because you need to show that you are compliant with the standard or you're following the standard to get certification to be in the market in many situations. So they're effectively mandatory standards. And so it's a huge issue for some of our tech clients to understand, to be a part of the standard setting process here in China. And in some cases, it's blatantly discriminatory. Globally, China is seeking to get a more of a seat at the table for international standard development. And I think that like on the surface, if standards were just remained in the realm of engineers, and if the best engineers in the world were sitting around the table saying, what is the international standard that we should be adopting? I think that everybody would agree that's the, that's the best scenario. And China does have some of the best engineers in the world. And so it's completely understandable and necessary for them to have a seat at these global standards setting bodies at the table. But the issue is that it's becoming increasingly politicized, both on the Chinese side. And that's why we're seeing these documents where they're, they're advocating a greater role in standards setting bodies. And also from the EU and the US side that do fundamentally mistrust Chinese intentions. And so there's a lot of jockeying going on now for who is setting the standards. And if you use the example of Huawei, trying to push forward a new internet protocol standard, you know, this is a great example of like the problem. So here we have Huawei that's saying that we need a new internet protocol standard because the old one is clunky and it can't handle things like 5G and Internet of Things. On the surface, seems like a reasonable technical reason for pushing a new internet protocol standard. But critics of that standard say that the standard is going to allow for more control by governments over the internet. It gives them the tools they need to control the internet within their own country. So this is the kind of problem. Is this just a technical issue driven by a company that's really got some of the best engineers in the world, or is this politically driven? Yeah, that's a great point. And also goes back to our theme of, is it about us or about them? They might be doing that for their own reasons. They want a new internet protocol so that you have more government control. But then of course, that given the size of the market, but also China's lead in some technologies that also affects other players, even if it's mainly about them, so to speak. So that's a great, I think, kind of segue to something that's been in the media very recently in terms of setting standards and the suspicion around some of those standards and protocols. And that is the digital yuan, the yuan. We've just seen that in the last couple of days or last week, what would have been arguably a major player in that space, Ant Financial, have their IPO delayed uh, or postponed by the authorities in Beijing, regardless of what and how they roll out a digital yuan. One can expect that a company like Ant, with its breadth and depth in China, is going to be a major player. So, Yuanqin, I know that you are a bit of an expert in the EU on. So let's start with the same kind of theme that we were talking with Carly about. 
there's a lot of fear or trepidation outside of China around the introduction of a digital yuan, a digital currency. In other words, is it going to supplant the dollar or is it going to supplant other currencies globally? And it's a complicated question that I know you've spent a lot of time looking at, and some of it is still obviously it's evolving. It's, it's a moving feast. So tell us about that. Give us kind of the dummy's guide to the digital yuan, what it means, what it is, and what it's meant to be. Okay. Thank you for having me today. Yes. So as you said, there has been increasing media coverage on China's digital currency development over the past two years, especially since Facebook launched its liberal plan in June last year. And we noticed that international media focus mainly on two issues. The first one is that China will be the first major economy to, to implement a sovereign digital currency. And it wants to set a global center for digital currency development around the world. And the second one is that by issuing the digital RMB, China wants to counter the current U.S.-led international financial system, or even China wants to overthrow the whole system. And we know that China is still testing the digital RMB in four cities across the country. And most recently, China is trying to revise its law, saying that there will be two types of RMB. One is the cash and the other one is the digital RMB. And we did a research, an in-depth research early this year. And we actually found that China's development of the digital currency actually mainly aims to address domestic problems. Uh, for example, the digital currency will likely reduce costs of banknotes printing, issuance, and circulation because, as you know, that issuing banknotes costs the government a lot of money every year. Uh, and the second one is that the digital currency will increase China's central bank's control of the currency, both currency supply and circulation, and it will also facilitate the central bank supervision of a lot of economic activities. So basically, the implementation of the digital currency will mean that the central bank can, in theory, monitor every transfer in China and across the world based on the use of uh, the digital RMB. And also, because the central bank will be able to monitor every transfer, it will also reduce illegal activities such as tax evasion and money laundering. And finally, it will also improve the efficiency and transparency economic activities. For example, government subsidies to companies, to provinces, and to different sectors. So we have read through a lot of statements by the Chinese government. And we noticed that most statements by the Chinese government, they focus only on domestic problems and domestic concerns. And still, there are some statements by the Chinese government that suggests that the Beijing wants more countries and companies use a digital currency outside China. But we believe it's more likely to be a side effect because digital RMB is still RMB, right? So if foreign countries and companies do not want to use the RMB, they are very unlikely to use the digital RMB as well. They worry that the Chinese government will be able to monitor how they use the digital currency they will not use the digital currency. I think this is quite clear for them. That's good. I absolutely agree. I think a lot of it is around the transparency issue and the control issue from the PBOC, the central bank. And that's a lot of what I've seen as well. So again, it comes back to that theme of our chat here today. Is it about China and China's domestic needs, or is it about the international world and global space? And I think 
broadly speaking, what we've heard from both you and Carly is that, you know, these drivers are domestic, whether it's the digital yuan or standards or self-sufficiency, the real drivers are domestic ones. But obviously, because of the size of China's economy and its growing importance, it has an impact on companies who want to do business in China or are doing business in China, but it has certainly impact beyond that. I just want to thank both of you for taking a really complex set of issues and simplifying it for us, for the listeners today. I thought, I think that was a really great encapsulation of some very kind of politicized, to be sure, Carly, as you said, uh, politicized topics, but I think you did a great job of giving the balance and explanation to all of them. So thanks very much. And hopefully we'll have you back again to talk about other aspects of the China technology world. Thanks, Dave. Thanks. If you enjoyed what you heard on this episode of In Focus, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen. And be sure to subscribe to our other podcasts as well, such as The Global Insight, our fortnightly panel discussion exploring the impact of the most pressing issues on global business. All of our podcasts are available wherever you listen. Just search Control Risks. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we are helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com.